0: Amen. Thank you so much, choir. Esther chapter 7 this morning, in your copy of God's Word, please. Esther chapter 7. I read this past week about an incident from history involving Sir Walter Raleigh. How many of you remember Sir Walter Raleigh uh, from school and, and studying about Sir Walter Raleigh? Well, I read that when Sir Walter Raleigh was about to be beheaded, the executioner asked him a question. And he asked him if his head lay right. That's what the executioner, as I read this, said to Sir Walter Raleigh. here's what Sir Walter Raleigh said. Now, remember, he's about to be beheaded. He's about to have his head lifted from his shoulders. And here's what he said. It matters little, my friend, how the head lies, provided the heart is right. It matters little, my friend, how the head lies, provided the heart is right. You know... It's important to make sure that our head is right. It's important to make sure that our thoughts and our beliefs are correct and, and accurate and biblical. But we, we dare not miss the heart. In fact, let me share a verse of Scripture with you. Look at it with me. Proverbs 4.23. Uh, this is in the New Living Translation. It says, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. So I want to ask you a question today, dear friend. And I want to ask you this. How's your heart? How's your heart? Now, of course, I'm not talking about the organ in your chest that's pumping blood through your body right now. I'm talking about your heart as the center of your physical and mental and spiritual life. Uh, Just as we need to have our physical hearts checked out from time to time and a doctor takes a stethoscope and and listens to our heart, we also need a spiritual heart checkup from time to time. And I believe that Esther chapter 7 gives us a wonderful opportunity to have a spiritual heart checkup. Now, we've been studying the story of Esther here in the book of Esther. And the story has built itself up into a point where something has to give. Let me refresh your memory now. Wicked Haman, the enemy of the Jews, has placed all the Jews under a death sentence. There's a date on the calendar where they're all going to be just done away with. Completely, absolutely, totally all of them. He's prospering while they're about to perish. Now, Queen Esther, she's a Jew, but she hasn't made that known. Haman doesn't know it. Her husband, the king, doesn't know it. She decides to risk her life by approaching the king in order to try to save her people. And you didn't just walk into the throne room. You literally laid your life on the line because if he didn't extend that golden scepter to you, you were a dead person standing. Now, she invites him to a banquet. And he wants to know what she wants, and she says, well, come back to my next banquet, and I'll let you know. She hasn't broached the subject yet, but she's invited them to another banquet, the king and the enemy, Haman. And today, I'll just be honest with you, if you've read ahead, if you know the story, we're going to see the end of Haman. Now, Esther chapter 7 is only 10 verses, and it's really quite simple to outline. Uh, You can outline it a number of ways as far as the words, but here's the way I did it. In verses 1 through 7, you have the enemy exposed. The enemy is exposed. He's brought out into the light. And in verses 8 through 10, you have the enemy disposed. He's done away with. So you have the enemy exposed and then disposed here in Esther chapter 7. So let's jump in with both feet. And let's see what we can learn together. Let's do a spiritual heart checkup, if we can. And let's get the the rest of this part of the story. Esther chapter 7, I'll begin reading at verse 1. Follow along in your copy of the Scriptures, please. Esther chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, and here's the question again, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request up to half the kingdom? It shall be done. Look at verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, Now here you're going to hear familiar words from that edict. We have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. Now listen, this is all told in a very quick and factual way. But imagine all the emotion that's encapsulated in just those first four verses. First of all, Esther doesn't know how the, the king's going to react. I mean, he's a volatile individual to say the least. He's unpredictable. Uh, he's a dangerous fellow to deal with. And here she is saying, listen, give me my life. Give me my people's lives. She didn't know how he's going to react. King Ahasuerus doesn't even know that Esther's life is in danger. He doesn't even know she's in danger. And then he has been so foolish in allowing Haman to do what he's done. And Haman, I'm a-guessing, Never saw this coming. He, he never imagined it. And he had a little bit of a warning of it. You know, he's just been humiliated by parading Mordecai through the, the streets. And his wife and friends just said, Hey, you may not, not going to prosper. But I don't know if he knew or had this idea that, listen, I'm going to a banquet and it's going to be my last banquet because I have said to kill all the Jews. And I wasn't aware that the queen was a Jew. Look at verse 5. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? I don't know if King Ahasuerus had forgotten about the edict. I don't know if he's speaking for emphasis here or if he even knows all the details. You know, he just kind of handed his his, uh, signet ring to Haman and let Haman have his way. But watch what Esther says carefully, verse 6. And Esther said... The adversary, an enemy, is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Notice what she calls Haman. She calls him an adversary. She calls him an enemy. And she calls him wicked. As I read that, I couldn't help but think about someone else in the Bible that's called the adversary. Our adversary, the devil who walketh about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour Satan himself. And of course, beloved, I hope you realize that the one behind evil Haman is none other than Satan himself. He's satanically inspired here to do this thing. And he is behind this dastardly deed to do away with the Jews. And I think the end of verse 6 is said, as plain as it could be, it says Haman was terrified. I imagine he was trembling. I mean, literally trembling with fear as he's been exposed in his evil, wicked plan. You know, his life and his plans have come apart at the seams. He's gone from 60 to zero in a second. I mean, everything was going wonderful at one point. I mean, just think about it. Just 30 seconds ago, he was the second most powerful man in all the world. In that that kingdom, I should say, that world. And now, this second most powerful man... In a matter of 30 seconds, he has been brought to being powerless and terrified and afraid. Verse 7. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther pleading for his life. For he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. You know, I almost feel sorry for King Ahasuerus here. Almost feel sorry for him. He had trusted Haman. Uh, he promoted Haman, uh, he advanced Haman, he depended upon Haman, and now the king sees that he's betrayed. That all the trust that he's put into this person, and you know, if you've ever been betrayed by someone, you know, kind of imagine what he's going through. And I'm sure the king's beginning to put the pieces together and maybe realizes that he himself is not innocent in this. He'd given Haman the authority. He gave him his ring and the ability to go out and do this thing. And he goes out into the garden. Now the question is, why did he go out into the garden? I mean, did he go out there to collect his thoughts? Did he go out there to absolutely keep from exploding? I mean, he might just felt like he was just going to explode right there. But for whatever reason, he gets up and he leaves the scene for a moment. And it leaves uh, Haman behind. And Haman is uh, at the feet of the queen Pleading for his life. It's interesting. He was upset because a Jew would not bow to him. And now he's bowing to a Jew. It's interesting, isn't it? He may have even grasped her feet and began begging. As was common in that area. Uh, as a common custom. Look at verse 8. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine... Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Now remember, they didn't dine like we do. They didn't have, you know, straight back chairs and a table. They would recline as they ate and as they had their wine. And, uh, he had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, you know, he sees the worst possible light because he sees Haman in the worst possible light now. Will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. You see, you didn't even dare come close to the queen. You didn't come close to the king's harem. Um, the deed was done. They cover Haman's face, a sign that he's done. Uh, he's, he's headed out. Verse 9. Now, Harbona, one of the eunuchs said to the king, and it just makes me think as I read this, beloved, that um, Haman was not well liked by many people. Uh, I imagine even those who served in the palace and those who served in the kingdom, maybe uh, they they were done with Haman. Look at verse 9. Now, Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, look, the gallows 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai. Uh, King, look out there. Do you see that gallows out there? Yeah, that's a gallows that Haman made for Mordecai. You remember Mordecai? Look at what it says in the next part of the verse. Who spoke good on the king's behalf. Remember Mordecai who saved your life? Remember Mordecai who you just honored? Yeah, Haman built a gallows to hang that fellow on. See it there? Look at what it says in the next part of the verse. "Is standing at the house of Haman. In his backyard, he's got a gallows to kill someone who's been faithful to you. Then the king said, very simply, hang him on it. Verse 10. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that they had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. Reminds me, beloved, if you give some people enough rope, they end up hanging themselves. And Haman set out to destroy God's people. He set out to destroy the Jews, and God destroyed him. See, Haman would not turn from his wicked ways. He was the enemy of the Jews. If you're the enemy of the Jews, beloved, you're the enemy of God. God has promised, God has covenanted himself to protect his people, to bless those who bless them and curse them that curse those people. And when someone decides to fight against God, well, you know how that's going to turn out, don't you? If you decide to fight against God, you're going to lose every single time. And Haman set himself up as the avowed enemy of God because he was the enemy of God's people. But the question begs to be asked, Okay, we get it. The bad guy loses. Haman is hanged. So what? What does that mean to us today? Maybe you're thinking that preacher. What does that mean to us today? Well, I'm so glad you asked because this is where the heart check comes in. This story lends itself to do a spiritual heart checkup. There are three important areas that we need to check up on in our hearts that we that I see in this passage. And I want to go through them with you here real quickly. Number one, I want to ask this question. I want you to ask this question of yourself. Okay? Where is my heart when it comes to others? Where is my heart when it comes to others? Now, Esther reminds us of the importance of others by what she said. And by what she did. Now remember, she was not a known Jew. She was the queen. I assume she could have kept her mouth closed. And she could have lived out her days there in the palace. In luxury. Living up the life. Because she was the queen. But Esther cared about other people. And Esther cared for her people. Look at her words again. Look at verse uh, 3 again. The end of it. Let my life be given me at my petition. uh, King, I want to be saved. And my people at my request. Look at verse 4. For we have been sold, my people and I. Esther realized that life was not just about her. She realized that other people mattered. She realized that life was too precious. Time was too short to live a self-centered life. And the question we need to ask ourselves today is, what about us? Do we really care about other people? Do we have a heart for other people? Do we wish to minister to other people? Do we really want to reach other people for Jesus Christ? Do we really love other people? Are we willing to lay our life down? Are we willing to be inconvenienced and even harmed in order to help other people? Or have our hearts become self-centered and selfish and self-focused? Or is our heart burning this morning with love for God and our fellow man? I ask you, beloved, how's your heart when it comes to others? Esther's a wonderful example of having a heart for other people. So ask yourself, be honest today. Where is my heart when it comes to others? And then secondly, here's a very important one. Where is my heart when it comes to vengeance? Where is my heart when it comes to vengeance? You know... This is difficult when it comes to a story like this. It's kind of like one of those TV shows or one of those movies where the villain finally gets it. You ever been watching a TV show or a movie and the villain is there? You just can't wait, just can't wait, and he gets it. Yes, he got it. You're you a chicken, you know. Yeah, see. You've been waiting all this time. And he finally gets it. She finally gets it. The bad guy gets it. And you're like, yes. But listen. This is not a make-believe story. Haman was a real person. Esther was a real person. Mordecai was a real person. And if we're not careful, we can harbor vengeance in our hearts and hatred in our hearts. If we're not careful, we can forget. That the Bible says, and God says, that vengeance belongs to me. Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, thus saith the Lord. Why? Because God can make things right perfectly in His time for our good and His glory. Let me say that again. God can make things right perfectly in His time for our good and for His glory. Now listen. I'm going to balance this in a moment. But let me go ahead and give you this. We shouldn't rejoice when the Hamans in our world finally get what they have coming to them. In fact, we should be grieved by it. We shouldn't rejoice when the Hamans in our world get it. We should be grieved by it. Why? Well, we all deserve hell. I deserve hell. You deserve hell. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. We were avowed enemies of God, shaking our puny fist in His face. But God in His love and grace and mercy said, listen, I know that you're a sinner. I know that you've done wrong, but I love you and I give my Son for you. And Jesus came, lived a sinless, perfect life, voluntarily shed His precious blood on that cross. He died, He rose again victorious. And He lives forevermore. And the Bible says that if we'll return from our sin and place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. But never forget, beloved, we don't deserve heaven. We don't deserve Jesus. We don't deserve grace. We don't deserve mercy. It's all because of His grace and love and mercy that we have anything good in our life and anything good to look forward to. We should never rejoice we should never rejoice when someone dies and goes to hell. Never if we rejoice and someone dies and goes to hell, it shows that our heart is not right. Our heart should be broken when someone dies without Christ. In fact, when we, we get rejoicing over someone dying without Christ, it shows that we're not godly. Let me give you two verses. Jot these references down. Jot down this reference, Ezekiel eighteen twenty three. Listen to what the Bible says in Ezekiel 18, 23. Do you think that I like to see wicked people die? Says the sovereign Lord. Let me read that again. Do you think that I like to see wicked people die? Says the sovereign Lord. Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. God himself says, listen, I don't rejoice at wicked people denying me and rejecting me and dying. In fact, it reminds us of the new Testament second peter three nine the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, any but that all should come to repentance and So when it comes to a person 's eternal destiny, beloved we don 't rejoice when someone dies and goes to hell. We weep, we weep because it 's forever it 's eternal. They're apart from Christ in a lake of fire. That's why we want to warn them. That's why we want to reach them and see them come to faith in Christ. But let me balance it now. Because let's be honest about it. When you first read chapter 7, and when I first read chapter 7, there was... What was the feeling? Be honest about it. Relief? Rejoicing? Yeah, got it. What do we do with that? Is that entirely sinful? Now listen, is that entirely sinful? No. Why? I want you to drop this reference down. Proverbs 11.10. Proverbs 11.10, I think, will help us to understand that feeling. Proverbs 11.10. It says, the whole city celebrates when the godly succeed. Now listen, they shout for joy when the wicked die he said, wait a minute, let wait, me wait, 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 read that again. Proverbs eleven ten. 10. The whole city celebrates when the godly succeed. They shout for joy when the wicked die. Now, you just said we shouldn't be excited about it. And that says the city. Yes, now listen, here's, here's the balance. This is more focused upon the removal of the wickedness and the evil that's being defeated. Not rejoicing in a person who dies and goes to hell, but rejoicing the fact that evil has been defeated. Evil has been removed. We rejoice in that. See, Haman being killed, in one sense, is a good thing. Why? Because it preserved the Jews. And by preserving the Jews, what did it do? It left the path for the Messiah to come. That's a good thing. But Haman being killed was also a sad thing. Why? Because he's still burning in hell this morning. Do you see the delicate balance in this? We don't rejoice personally over someone dying going to hell. But we do rejoice when evil is moved out of the way. When evil is defeated. When darkness gives way to the light. Do you see the delicate balance there? I see you need to chew on in a while. I do too. But it's there nonetheless. So it's not entirely simple. You get to chapter 7 say, Haman's moved out of the way. We don't rejoice over him going to hell. But we do rejoice that truth has triumphed over error. Light over darkness. Righteousness over evil. Do you see the balance? It's very delicate. We better move on. One more place we need to check on our heart. Where is my heart when it comes to trust? Where is my heart when it comes to trust? Now, in this instance, Haman, in this story, is done away with. He's killed. He's taken out of the way. It took some time to accomplish that. It took courage. It took fasting. It took risking of life and limb. But God, in His graciousness, He honored all this and did away with the enemy. Now, here's the real struggle, beloved. What do we do when the Hamans in our life are not done away with? What do we do when the Hamans in our life are not done away with? When they remain. And sad to say, not only remain, they prosper. And they not only remain and prosper, they keep doing harm. What do we do with those Hamans? What do we do when they're very vocal? The Hamans in our life are very vocal and it seems that God is silent. What do we do? the answer is very simple. Now, listen, I didn't say it's easy. But it's simple. We have to trust God. And we have to trust them to God. I saw a quote this past week, and I don't know who this person is. I've never seen anything by her before, but it was a wonderful quote, and I jotted it down. I want to share it with you. Look at this uh, quote from Heather Zimple. Faith is not the assurance... That everything's going to be okay. Faith is the assurance that God is in control. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Faith is not the assurance that everything's going to be okay. Faith is the assurance that God is in control. Now, in the end, for the believer, if you're a child of God, everything's going to be okay. Absolutely. Heaven awaits us. But listen, not always here and now. In the here and now, everything's not always okay. In this instance, the Jews are preserved. But what about all the Jews since then that have died? What about that next Haman named Hitler that walked out on the world history stage and what he did? What about when another Haman walks out? Faith, it's not the assurance that everything's going to be okay, that everything's going to be just fine and dandy. People die for their faith. People are persecuted for their faith. People are martyred for their faith. Yes, they're okay in the end, they're going to heaven, but not always here. But faith is the assurance that God is in control. And beloved, may I say to you today, when you look at our world, I look at our country. I look at what we're doing, where we're headed. And fear could take over and grip our hearts and our lives, but don't let it. Listen, walk in faith knowing that God is in control. God is in control. Was God in control during this episode in the book of Esther? Yes, was God in control when Hitler killed all those Jews? Yes. You say, well, I don't understand that, preacher. I don't either. But God is always 100% in control. And if we're honest, we don't always know what God is up to. We don't know exactly how he's using our lives. We don't know exactly how he's touching others through our lives. You see, you know Why? We don't see the whole movie like God does. He sees the whole thing all at once. We only see it frame by frame. He's eternal. He transcends time. He sees the end from the beginning. He sees all at the same time everything. He knows all at once. all Everything. We live it out day by day, moment by moment. And so we have to trust Him. Ours is not the reason why. Ours is but to trust and obey. And we trust God. Pastor Stephen Davy shared some good words I'd like you to hear. He was quoting Robbie Zacharias. If you ever listening to Robbie Zacharias, you know, I listen to Robbie once in a while and I felt about as dumb as a brick whenever I listen to Robbie. He's a wonderful Christian apologist, defender of the faith. But in his book, Jesus Among Other Gods, he tells a story about when he traveled on one occasion to India. And he noticed a father and his little boy weaving some of the most beautiful Indian wedding saris he's ever seen. Now, not sari like S-O-R-Y, but a sari, S-A-R-I. And a sari, he says, is, of course, the garment worn by Indian women. It's usually six yards long. Now, think about that. You that so six yards long. Ravi writes, wedding saris are a work of art. They were rich in gold and silver threads, resplendent with an array of colors. The place I was visiting was known for making the best wedding saris in the world. I expected to see some elaborate system of machines and designs that would boggle the mind. Not so. Each sorry was being made individually by this father and son team. He writes that the father sat above on a platform two or three feet higher than his son, surrounded by several spools of thread, some dark and some shining. He said the son did just one thing. At a nod from the father, he would move the shuttle from one side to the other and then back again. The father would gather some threads in his fingers once more and the boy would move the shuttle again. He says, this was repeated for days, for hundreds of hours, until you would begin to see a magnificent pattern emerging. He writes, the son had the easier task, just to move at his father's nod. All along, the father had the design in his mind, and he brought the threads together. The more I reflect on my own life and study the lives of other believers... I am fascinated to see the design God has for each of us. It is His design. It is ours just to respond in obedience. Beloved, doesn't that paint a picture of our Heavenly Father? He has in His hands threads, some dark and some shining, and He weaves them together to create a beautiful pattern. And ultimately, we know what the pattern is. You know what He's doing with your life and my life? He's conforming us and He's making us to be in the image of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I ask you today, friend, how's your heart? Is it turned toward God in obedience and trust? Is it in tune with God and the good of others? Or is it filled today with hatred and malice and vengeance? How's your heart? Because the Bible is very clear. It says to us, beloved, guard your heart above all else. Why? For it determines the course of your life. How's your heart today? Father, we are so grateful for this story. We're so grateful that though we do not read your name in this particular book, your fingerprints are all over it. The book of Esther is filled with your working behind the scenes. And it's a reminder today, Lord, that you're working in our lives as well. Though we don't always recognize it, we don't always see it, we don't always acknowledge it, you're at work. And Father, I pray that you would help us to trust you and to move in obedience when you nod. Father, help us to be honest with ourselves as the Holy Spirit puts his finger on any area of our life. As we look at our heart today, where is our heart when it comes to others? Where is our heart when it comes to vengeance? And where is our heart when it comes to trust? And then, Father, I realize today that some may still have a hardened heart to you have never responded in faith or repentance. They don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior. I pray even now that you would touch their heart and bring them to saving faith in him before it's eternally too late. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your working in our world. You are great. You are glorious. You are beautiful. And we trust you and give our lives to you. Help us to obey you and trust you in all things. In Jesus' most holy and precious name we pray. Amen. The altar is open today very clearly. If you've never been saved, we'd love to lead you to the cross today. Just come let me know. We'll sit down with the Bible and lead you to the cross. Really, today's message for those of us, a lot of us who know the Lord. And maybe God has put his finger on some areas in your life. Maybe you want to come pray about that we would invite you to come. 310, as our closing hymn, Out of my bonded sorrow and night, Jesus, I come. And as we stand and sing, we invite you to come. 310, let's stand and sing.